Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey folks, welcome as always to Sex, Love, and Addiction. Now I so appreciate how many of you are taking the time to listen to this. I think we have over a million downloads at this point. And um, as always, Seeking Integrity, the treatment program and our work online supports this. So thank you for visiting us and thank you for coming to treatment. I keep saying to you guys that I'm bringing friends to you and you must think I have this great so clinical social life and I do. So I'm bringing to you Dr. Jamie Marich and Dr. Steve Dan- Danziger who have just taken the time to write out a workbook on trauma and the 12 steps. And we have talked a little bit uh, in the past about this with Dr. Mar- Marich, but but I do want to understand, and I think it's helpful to understand how you can make this work useful and not just read about it. So Dr. Marich, welcome. Thank you for having me again. It's nice to see you, be here with you on the podcast. And I want to say to you folks that Dr. Marich is the only person I know who's written more books than I have. So, you know, um, if I'm crazy, she's even a little more crazy than I am, but we sure do our best to try to help us, you know, with our skill set. It can be an addiction in its own right. And although I like to frame it as just have a lot to say. And I look at a lot of the writing that I do as this kind of art of paying it forward, passing on what others helped me to see. And so, yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah. And I'll say to that, that the greatest gift for me is when someone in another country writes and said, you know, this changed my life and I'll never meet them and I'll never know them. And yet, you know, we had an effect on someone's life. And that's a great thing. Well, what's really pretty cool about that, though, is our the other guest with me here today, Dr. Danziger, he was one of those people who wrote me when I did the original trauma in the 12 steps in 2012, just to say, hey, I read your book and he could tell that story if he wants. But now all these years later, we've written three books in collaboration, do a lot of other work together. So you never know what happens sometimes if you reach out to people. So you want to come on on that, Dr. Danziger? Like what made you reach out to her and say, hey, we are are of like minds? Yeah, I mean, I'm someone who was already in recovery and I was working in recovery as well. And I was uh, introduced to EMDR therapy very early in that journey. And there it was. I was just doing some random research on some, trying to find some trauma resources. And there was the book title, read it called her, said, I need to know you. 
And not long after that, had her come out to the treatment center I was working at in Los Angeles. And she trained some of the staff. And like, like Jamie said, you know, we've been writing books together and doing all kinds of shenanigans since. Well, it sounds like you two are friends as well as colleagues, and I think that's yes. always when we do our best work. Well, in case you really couldn't stand each other, in which case you wouldn't do particularly good work. <laughs> but I think you're right, and I'm going to just call you Dr. Jamie, that people do find us, all kinds of people find us, and you just never know where that thing we put out there is going to bring back to us. And speaking of that, here we are on a podcast, which will go out and it will come back to us. So Dr. Jamie, you know, I want to start with you because you wrote the original book all the way back in 2012. Mm -hmm. And then the two of you got together, or I guess, Dr. Danzinger, you wrote the forward to her second edition of Trauma and the 12 Steps. I get that right. right. Yeah. And that came out in 2020, which is when I believe I first guested on, on your podcasts and some of your other programs. And yeah, at that time in 2020, we also had the long-term vision here of putting together some supplementary resources in the form of a daily meditation reader and a workbook. So at that time in 2020, my company, Institute for Creative Mindfulness, put together a rudimentary workbook and then North Atlantic Books, who's my publisher of the main trauma in the 12 steps, they said, let's pick it up as a workbook for this year. And so Steve and I had a chance to revise it, add some new content to it. And so that uh, is out in the world as of August 29th of 23. This is a difficult topic to write about from two perspectives. You know, one is trauma and then one is the challenge that people have with this whole issue of the steps and spirituality, which by the way, can be its own form of bringing up trauma for people. Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, what I really am impressed with both of you is that you took, and I totally agree with this, is you took concepts and ideas, which are often interesting to people. And thanks for telling me about that. And I learned a lot, or that's how I, what I go through. And you turned it to actual things that people could do and figure out for themselves. And I just want to say for me, one of the things I admire about that is I often think about the people who will never make therapy. They don't have the resources. They don't have the time. They, and what you're giving them, you're giving everybody is a chance to do this work, whether or not they have the money or the time to be able to see a therapist. So to me, that's the gift. And that is a big reason I've shifted more into doing books. Honestly, uh, some people like we joked about, you know, why do you put out so many books? And I know Rob, a lot of years are, are, that kind as well, where they're accessible, they're relatively affordable. And yeah, I I just think a big part of this work is, yes, of course, you know, we, we have these careers doing therapy and doing trainings and having centers or whatnot, but we do have to keep an open mind to what are the ways, whether it be through media outlets like this or through our books and workbooks, especially, which are even more user-friendly that um, we can make this work more accessible. I appreciate that. I'm going to go to Dr. Steve in a second, but I think so many people are, are blessed, you know, they're, you know, I'll go to therapy or I'll see you this or that. And, and I think far more people never have that opportunity, but we're not touched talking to them. So here we get a chance to, so I, uh, Dr. Steve, you had a admiration for her and for the work, but what made you jump into wanting to be involved in the workbook? Yeah. You know, it was, it's a longish journey, right? Meeting her in in, around 2012 and sort of going along a few different pathways together and then getting to that point where uh, we had the opportunity. We were kind of coaxed into it by uh, Anna David. Uh, Coaxed is a friendly word for it. She was just like, do this. 
And, and who um, is this? I'm sorry, people won't know who that is. So, well, sure, sure, sure. Anna David is uh, well. She's many things. She's a publisher. She's a recovery advocate. She's a recovery memoirist. Um, she's also been, uh, you know, featured uh, as an expert on a lot of uh, news programs uh, over the years. Uh, she's a novelist. She had a novel. So she Party twisted Girl. your arm. <laughs> she twisted the arm. She twisted my right mm. arm, then my left arm. Then she started with Jamie. And before you know it, you know, here we were. Another but, um, year of your life went away. <laughs> well, I, you've written a bunch of books and let's just talk about you, Dr. Denzinger. Like, you know, where do you come from? I mean, what is your perspective? What have you written ab- about or do you think is valuable that contributes to this? So the, the two books that I, that I wrote on my own, because all the rest are uh, co-author with uh, Jamie. Oh, wow. The first, first one was Clinical Dharma. And clinical dharma, I, I've been on a Buddhist path for over 34 years, which is a, about the same that I've been on a recovery path. Um, I was brought to a Zen Buddhist monastery uh, for an AA retreat when I had about four months sober, and it stuck. And so uh, clinical dharma is a book about, and this is an obsession of mine, is how to help the healers to heal, because if we don't heal, then what's going to happen to the folks that we're trying to work with? So that's something that is, has been on my mind. And a lot of, you know, a lot of my work is about, there's not, not a separation between trauma therapy and 12 steps and Buddhist practice. And it's all just of, of, a, of a, a like thing. And then the other, or another book I wrote was Mindfulness for Anger Management, which mm. came out doing a, a lot of work in, uh, in the diversity space and in the anger management space and conflict resolution space. And when I moved to LA in 2002 and started working in treatment centers, that was the first thing that I started doing was anger management groups. And so anger is such a huge piece of the 12 step, uh, the 12 step dilemma, right? Resentment is the number one offender and all that. And so again, like with it sort of all being connected. So, yeah, so I just want to also say around what you and Jamie were talking about a moment ago, the accessibility thing, like being able to contribute something that is useful, uh, regardless of what a person is able to do or wanting to do um, uh, outside of, you know, their own personal work or work in a 12 step program or otherwise. Um, that's a, a, a major feature of Jamie's work in general. And then I try to, you know, participate that way, too. Well, I just want to say something about um, anger which is that, um, you know, working with addicts and often listening to their spouse's story, their family member's story, and, you know, them feeding that back. I, I never really realized how much physical harm and rage that addicts expand. We're so focused on the addiction. And when I hear from their spouses, it's like, well, yeah, he threw plates and he held me down and, you know, he locked the kids in their room, you know, just like, really awful things that when you know addiction is not just about denial about my behavior mm-hmm. i'm always amazed at how not everyone and but how a number of men in particular can be acting out to hide their own issues or in, in rage about not getting their way or so i really appreciate your bringing that up and i want to go to you uh dr jamie because we're talking about trauma mm-hmm. and when you yell at someone, scream at them, break plates, hold them down. You're creating trauma or you're revisiting trauma on the person or people you do that to. And 
oftentimes the people we work with are working the steps and trying to find recovery and all of that. What place does that have or how do you work with that? What comes up when people are trying to recover and yet they're creating trauma at the same time as they've lived through it? Well, when you fully figure it out, you can let me know. And I, I say that jokingly because it's it's really individualized for everybody. Yet you speak to a very salient point that I know a recovery slogan that often gets said is hurt people hurt people. How I really like to reframe that though is trauma is this phenomenon where we can bleed all over each other because the word trauma just means wound. And in, in my teaching, throughout my teaching, I really say, let's keep it as simple as that. The English word for trauma comes from the Greek word meaning wound. And when our wounds remain unhealed, we have this tendency to bleed all over the people that we come into contact with and we can bleed all over ourselves. So it's, it's a tricky process, which can involve how do we stabilize the wound in the first place to at least stop the bleeding while knowing that there might be deeper metaphorically speaking, surgical level work that needs to be done on those wounds. And what's interesting though, about relationship and interacting with life and interacting with others is even though they can bring up these landmines or these triggers, they can also bring up opportunities for us to see our own stuff and do our own work. If we choose to embrace that as an opportunity. Well, just to say it, Dr. Danzinger just mentioned that. Mm-hmm. And I think about the heal- healing, the healers. And by the way, one of my thoughts, Steve was, well, I guess we would have to know that there's something we have to heal before we go to heal it. And so many therapists don't have a clue that they actually have issues they need to work on. But anyway, I wanted to go back to you, Dr. Merch, because um, I interrupted you. Somebody asked me once in an interview like this, what, what's the greatest gift that I've gotten out of being a therapist, especially who specializes in trauma? And my short answer is, I think because of doing this work, it's given me an opportunity to see myself more clearly than I would have, let's say, if I was an accountant or an auto mechanic or some other profession, because people and their stuff, even who I work with, who I teach can trip me up. But that gives me an opportunity to say, what is this bringing up in me and how can I address this, heal it further? You know, the word that comes up for me when I hear that is compassion. Hmm. That what you're learning is to be compassionate toward these people. And then it brings up that I have to be kinder to myself and my own wounds. And so, yeah, that's pretty aware. I want to go back to the book because I think this is, as I said, not a lot of people have a chance to look at trauma, understand trauma. And not only have you brought it up, but you've also given them a path and a path that is a familiar one in terms of the steps for a whole bunch of people. So first of all, I guess I, I, I know we've talked about this before, but how do you how do you put these two pieces together? You know, trauma seems like a psychological issue and the 12 steps seem related to addiction. And, you know, how, how do you manage to weave these things together? Well, I, I think one of the ways that, that makes the most sense is to realize that they're not as separated as we've thought, that the field has created this dissociation between kind of mental health and trauma goes over here and addiction goes over here. And I, I think you know this, it's not news to, to people like you who work with the interplay between trauma and addiction, that the two really aren't that separated, that even if you do believe in what's been ordinarily called this disease model of addiction, trauma can be a big causality in that or can exacerbate the progression of a disease. And there's just so many 
so much evidence now that we're seeing about the link between unhealed trauma and addiction. So I don't think you can be doing addiction care in this country or anywhere in the world right now without looking at the impact of trauma. I mean, gone are these days of being able to say, oh, it's just an addiction because it's an addiction. Or just so, work the steps and you'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Just work mm-hmm. the steps and you'll be fine. And, and I've said this anytime I talk about trauma in the 12 steps that I was privileged to be introduced to the steps by a sponsor who got that, who got the impact of trauma and mental health and still worked a very traditional 12 step program. Yet had she not been my sponsor, I don't know if I would have stayed around recovery. Can you explain a sponsor? Cause some people may not know what that means. I mean, traditionally in the 12 step rooms, a sponsor is somebody who is a mentor to your recovery. The historical origin of the term is interesting. It's whoever footed the bill for your detox stay back in the 1930s. And then AA adopted the term that this person was, was sponsoring you. Yeah. It's, it's your mentor. It's not necessarily somebody who's a professional, but it's somebody who also works a 12 step program that takes you through the steps. I think the essence of, and thank you for that, because not everyone knows that we actually have guides and mentors available to us if we seek them out. But again, I I was trying to get to the 12 steps. Like, what does that have to do? I understand that, you know, trauma and addiction are related in very meaningful ways, which is something that I don't know that everyone everyone really comprehends for themselves, which does build compassion. But why throw the 12 steps into that? You could just give them, you know, first write this and first work on that. And you you could give them a trauma resolution book without bringing in this recovery piece. Why do you do that? I'll let Steve take that one first, because honestly, obviously, I have some strong feelings on this. But Steve's been around the 12 steps longer. So, Steve, go. Well, you know, you can look at it from the perspective of the the arc of the history of the 12 steps and the 12-step programs, right? And you know, the, the our origination of it is, you know, 100% on the spiritual side with a dollop of psychology. And as it progressed and as Bill Wilson and the early people kind of, kind of, you know, saw their way and were learning what really needed to happen in addition to what they sort of discovered for themselves as the beginnings of it. Which was, what did they discover that it was it was more about just than just connection and it was more than just about step work and that you know a, a lot of what was sort of paid lip service in the literature like we seek outside help like uh, allowing for the fact that it isn't just the 12 steps and that solves everything and then on we go and a lot of the trauma that i think came up in the 12 step programs that Jamie saw and was writing about was the trauma of people kind of telling people within groups, you know, you have to do it this way. If you have this kind of God or you have this kind of program and if, Oh, watch out for those medications, you know, like all of the things that are sort of outside the purview, those were a lot of the ways that we traumatized each other. And then also, you know, back then 80 years ago and even 20 years ago, we didn't have the same language around trauma informed care and being trauma sensitive and so, you know, in this case, what it is, is Jamie and I both are, are, you know, I'll speak for myself and I know Jamie is there because here we are writing these books, right? Is we both love the 12 steps, right? And we want them to be accessible to all. And the lack of, you know, any lack of trauma sensitivity or trauma uh, awareness and even focused, trauma focusedness of uh, the work being done in 12 step groups is going to impact people. It's going to have them locked out because they don't won't want to come in, or it's going to have them drop out because they are re-traumatized in some way. 
So we're basically just leveraging, you know, new information that we have the same way we could leverage new information about depression or anxiety or so let me go back and maybe I really want to understand as best I could because I'm not sure I asked. Is the book, is the workbook about let's help you work through and with the trauma you have by applying each step of the 12 steps? Is that, ah, so help me understand. It's for people who want to work. Well, I guess it could be interpreted that way. It's for people who want to apply the 12 steps towards anything, whether it be alcoholism, drug addiction, uh, their struggles with compulsive sexuality, relational dependence, however you're terming that. People who, who have a 12-step need in any fellowship, as we might say, through, through any path, can pick up this book and be guided on how to apply the 12 steps in a manner that is more what we call trauma-sensitive or trauma-informed. Because like Steve, I still see a lot of value in the 12 steps. I think a lot of trauma scholars and trauma therapists have been like, oh, the 12 steps are antiquated, two white guys, 30s, let's let's throw them out. Christian. Yeah. And maybe because they helped me so much, I won't accept that narrative because I think they're still helpful. And I've seen them be very helpful to people who really need some kind of daily lifestyle accountability or orientation. So yeah, I, I, I want to be clear that I'm not one of those fundamentalists who thinks everybody has to have a 12 step program and you have to go to so many meetings a week, but I, I don't think the answer is to throw the 12, 12 steps all altogether, even though we're now better understanding the interplay of trauma and addiction. So yeah, the workbook and the trauma and the 12 steps work is really for anybody who wants to apply the 12 steps towards anything. So, you know, I know like Dr. Carnes wrote a book called uh, mm-hmm. A Gentle Path Through the Gentle 12 Path, Steps. Yeah. And that is really a guide for how mm-hmm. to use them toward this. And I guess I'd like to get a sense of what would be an exercise. And, and Dr. Danziger, maybe you could give me a, you know, um, one of the things we ask them to do, because this isn't just a book, it's a workbook. So what are some things, tasks that you ask people to do um, to find their way in this process? Well, one of the features that a lot of people have remarked that they like very much about the book is step zero. Um, so we have a step zero, which is honoring the fact that in, when we do trauma-informed or trauma-focused care, we take a lot of time and energy in preparation, and we take a lot of time and energy in building resilience and positive neural networks, right? And so step our step zero, the primary exercise is Write down 100 things that make you feel good that aren't drugs or your other, you know, anything else that's sort of on the side of, of, of being adaptive mechanisms in order to just get through. Can I just say to you, that's terrifying. I just think, oh my God, if I, I don't think I can get to 10. So that in itself is scary. Yeah, we make, we make it clear. We make it clear that this is a as long an exercise as you want or need. And we also make it clear that we're not just talking about like, you know, roller coasters and trips to Europe, you know, like that minty fresh feeling you get when you brush your teeth, you know, that feeling you get when you rub your eyes in the morning, you know, like, so it's, it's not about trying to find like this large, you know, living large kind of deal. It's basically, you know, this was introduced to me by a sponsor of mine years ago. And he, he just said, take your time. And then whatever it is you have, whether it's five or a hundred, when you're feeling down or you're kind of like a little rocky, just go to the list 
And it really works as a, you know, it's just basically building a habit of going toward what feels okay and makes me feel at least a little bit better. And then I can move into that, you know, gnarly step work. You know, it's interesting because one of the things I hear all the time is that our healing and our recovery and our sobriety, if you will, is not really just about stopping things. It's about what we do, not just what we don't do. Is that kind of what you're addressing? How can we feel good of ourselves instead of, instead of pointing at, well, this is wrong with me and that's wrong with me? And I think that's definitely a tone that we then take throughout the step work, that the step zero foundation is is a big part of that foundation. And something that I always learned about inventory, again, this was from my very amazing sponsor, is it also means categorizing what is quote unquote, she used the word right with you, but even that could be a little bit more of a value judgment. What, you know, what's, what's going well in your life or what, where are the pieces of evidence that show just how much you survived and how adaptive you were. And even if it is pointing to these little gratitudes, so like even in the inventory steps four and five, which can be very daunting for a lot of people, four and five are made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves and admitted to God, to ourselves and to another human being, <laughs> the exact nature of our wrongs. We really emphasize that an inventory doesn't need to be a shame list that yes, we do want to work towards taking some responsibility for what's ours to take, but that doesn't mean taking responsibility for absolutely everything because trauma survivors can be notorious for, we take responsibility for everything that isn't ours to take. And yeah, so each step in this workbook is really broken down in a way that we hope is manageable where it starts where Steve and I each share a little bit of our personal reflection on the step, what it was like working that step for us. And then we go into kind of some exercises for people who are working the step for the first time. And as the language nerd that I am. <laughs> yes, I heard that in the Latin version is. Yes, yes. That was <laughs> oh, yeah. I think it was Greek a few minutes ago. But yes, I, I do Latin. I do any, any word origin. Uh, I really invite people to even look at the step itself. Like we admitted we were powerless over alcohol or whatever the behavior is that our lives have become unmanageable and really ask people which words in that step scare you, terrify you, don't sit right with you, which words. And for a lot of people, that is that word powerless. It is that word unmanageable. And so we give people some space to inventory or just free write on what some of their struggles are with the step in the first place. And for me, that's a different experience than a lot of people have when they come into 12-step context and it's like, this is the step, just deal with it. This is, this is how it's written, so it must be done. And I want to give people the chance to you know, unpack the language and their reactions to the language. There's so much in what you're saying. And I, I, I have to jump back to one thing, which is the word sponsor that you mm. both talked about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here you are, I think, extremely skilled professionals and recovering people and, you know, uh, and really understanding the, the depth of the problems underneath. And yet, both of you gained so much from this person who may not be a therapist and who may not be mm-hmm. a professional, and yet they had things from their own experience to give you. And that really, I hope that impresses those you're listening is even if you can't go to therapy, that there are many, many people who are a few steps ahead of you in the healing process. And they really want to give you what they have to give. In fact, that helps heal them. So I just wanted to mention that. And it does sound like, and from what Dr. Steve said, that you kind of laying down a foundation when someone has a need to run to a 12-step program, it's usually because things are bad. Yeah. <laughs> Some bad stuff has gone down and not a lot of people go because, oh, you know, I've got an evening off. Let me go to a 12-step program. 
And so that pervasive sense of being bad, being wrong, which trauma, we start out with a lot of that. You know, how can I lay this foundation for people to understand that it isn't just about what's wrong with you and what you're doing badly and what you're doing wrong and, you know, sackcloth and ashes. And if I don't drink, then my life will be ruined or I won't have any fun. You're laying a foundation of hope for them is what I hear. And that's where the trauma recovery and the 12-step principles cross, right? Um, Trauma recovery is all about creating hope at the front end and giving uh, and psychoeducation is a word we use, but also just, you know, coaching and showing the person the path, which is their path to, to, to move in, right? That we're not directing them in some path of our creation. We're basically just sharing our experience and allowing a person to pick up what makes sense to them and then move forward with it. And there's a, a concept in EMDR therapy called front-loading. And it's all about front-loading this positive material and this hopeful material um, before getting into, before and during, you know, these kind of, you know, inventories. And I think one of the things that I used to get really riled up about when I would get riled up would be about folks getting addicted in a sense to what's my part, what's my part, what's my part, what's right. my part. Like, I don't know, man, you know, it's, I get it. And at the same time, it's not always what's my part, especially like people who were uh, stuck in their fourth step because a sponsor or somebody else said, you know, that childhood trauma of, over which you had absolutely no control, what's your part? And that's, maybe that's a question that needs to be asked at some point, maybe not, but it certainly doesn't need to be the front end of the consideration, right? Well, then again, I come back to compassion, which is... Yes, I'm responsible for my adult behavior, but I'm not a bad person. I wasn't responsible for what happened to me, but how I learned to adapt and survive, I am responsible for. And making that distinction is what, you know, so many people walk into treatment, I'm a bad person. And for me to shift that to you're a broken person, you know, I can't help bad people, but I can help broken people is part of that life raft that you're throwing to people of compassion. The other big culprit in the steps as they were written in the 30s is step six about character defects. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And a lot of people already have this loaded negative belief that I'm defective. And so that phrase can be, yes, very activating for folks. It's one of the main outside criticisms we hear about the 12 steps that why do you focus so much on character defects? And so I I had, you two will both appreciate this. I I did work a program of Workaholics Anonymous for a while and I still uh, bring in- We're not going to say anything about that. Okay, Dr. Tanzinger, we're 13 books saying we're not going to mention it. But something I really picked up in Workaholics Anonymous was- to frame step six as these are the negative coping skills I picked up along the way or the maladaptive coping skills I pick up along the way. Those of us who do a lot of work with parts can even see that through the lens of, you know, these are emotional parts that I developed to get my needs met or to help protect myself. Yes, they're not serving me anymore. And that might be another way to look at seven shortcomings. So again, I mean, Steve and I are both approaching this as, as the steps themselves are not really bad. They just have to be reworked and relanguaged for a lot of people who really want to understand the impact of trauma and be more compassionate. I like that that is continuing to come up as a theme in this interview. 
So is that what you did, for example, with that particular step, Dr. Steve? Did you say, okay, let's reframe this or re, refocus this on, I didn't do it because I was bad. I did it because I had to survive. And, you know, they may be defects or challenges I am acting out today as an adult, um, but I don't need to beat myself up with them. And so I guess I'm asking, is that an example of what you put in the workbook? Yeah, I think it's throughout the workbook because it's throughout the, you know, Jamie's original book and then just the whole premise of how is it that we make this path a trauma sensitive, trauma informed and trauma healing path? Because it intrinsically is. There's just missing pieces because there were missing pieces from the information folks had, you know, 80 years ago, 85 years ago, whatever it was at this point. Let me just say this, you know, I'm the wife of an alcoholic or I'm the wife or the husband of a sex addict or whatever. And I'm not sitting around saying, oh, my poor husband had so much trauma and he just had to drink. And I'm thinking, what an asshole for ruining my life. And, and, and so there is a line and I'm playing devil's advocate here where people say, okay, so they had trauma. Well, everybody had trauma, but they ended up hurting people and damaging and almost like trauma is an excuse for what they did. And I'm wondering how you keep that line between compassion and not taking responsibility. And Dr. Jamie's like jumping up and down. So until she's got her answer. There. This is one of my favorite things to talk about because yes, you're right. You know, playing that advocate that trauma can get appropriated as an excuse for everything. And people can try to out trauma each other. And so I'm, I'm right there with you. Once again, it was Janet, that first sponsor mentor of mine who gave me the golden thread of advice that is the reason I'm still alive today. And this is the guidance that I use to make this distinction. She said, Jamie, after she heard my story, after everything you've been through, it's no wonder you turned out alcoholic, but what are you going to do about it now? And that was such a wise thing to say, because she validated me first, but then didn't let me stew in that and get into the poor me's and the, but it's my trauma, but it's my trauma. Now that you know, what's the proactive steps you're going to take? What's the action? And again, she was very gentle with me, even leading me into that action. It wasn't brutally hitting me over the head with a club and saying, no, work the steps. It was validation first and then a challenge. And I think too often in very traditional 12-step circles, we challenge, 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 and don't validate. And sometimes in these trauma circles, it's validate, validate, validate. It's the trauma, it's the trauma, but we don't promote people into action or yes, taking responsibility for your adult behavior. So that is how I make the distinction for myself. And that's what guides a lot of my work. I'm curious, Steve's take on that too. Yeah, I was too. Say something really witty and pithy, Dr. Danzinger, because you got to, <laughs> what, uh, what Jamie said was so profound, you're going to have to jump in there and well, a, a couple of things. One is the, the spouse of the addict could, could use the book too um, in order to you know, use the 12 steps to help them along the journey of how do I heal from the trauma of having been uh, in the midst of this person's trauma acting out. Um, and the other thing that I'm thinking is because, because Rob, you have brought up compassion a lot and I always appreciate that, especially as a Buddhist, but also thinking of the teaching that I do around clinical Dharma is basically based on the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha. And the first truth is that life contains suffering, you know, that I need to investigate the nature of suffering. I need to investigate the nature of my own suffering more than anything else in order to then be able to be helpful with the suffering of others. 
And then the second and third truths are around um, the fact that the pain of life is not what is screwing me up. It's my relationship to the pain of life. It's the craving. It's the clinging. It's the unhealthy attachment. It's, it's all of those ways that I relate to it. That's where the suffering is. And that the third truth says that I can end that suffering. How can I end the suffering? I can't end the pain of life. I can't stop my spouse from being an addict who's saying that he's a trauma survivor and that's why it all happened. I, I can only end my craving for him to stop him or her to stop doing it for them to stop doing that. I can only end the clinging to the idea that if they change, then I'll be better, you know, like all of those things. And then the fourth uh, truth is, was the prescription, right? This is all a diagnostic and it's the prescription, which is the eightfold path of the Buddha, which is basically how to develop oneself into a compassionate, mindful being, right? You know, which is to develop wisdom, to then uh, set intention based off of that wisdom. And that's what this step work is designed to do. It's to help people to develop internal wisdom that allows them to set healthier, happier intentions and then speak and act and work in the world. And a lot of our offering, you know, because Jamie and I come from that world, a lot of our offerings are around helping people to make the effort to go towards mindfulness and concentration as practices to assist them in, in this work that we're talking about. So one of the things that really, uh, you know, that Jamie knows, you know, has been driving me for years is there was an article in the old uh, online um, magazine for recovery, The Fix, I think, thefix.com, that it was uh, Buddha and, the Buddha and Bill W. And the person who wrote it, uh, Regina, she, she did research, right? She, she went deep dive, and she found this pamphlet from the early Akron group, right? One of the early Akron groups in the 40s, written by, edited, excuse me, by Dr. Bob who is by far the more, you know, very sort of became a straight up Christian. Can you say who that is? Because I'm not sure everyone knows. Who sure, of course. Dr. Bob Smith was one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill Wilson had been sober for nine months trying by, by trying to help other people get sober, and none of them got sober. No, none of them got into recovery at all. And he was in Akron, down the street from where Jamie is now, and he was about to drink because he a business deal fell through. And he asked, uh, he called up someone he knew would know where he could find an alcoholic to talk to. And she found him, Dr. Bob Smith, who was a desperately alcoholic. He was a physician who was doing his work while hammered. And he agreed to speak to Bill Wilson and that night they spoke overnight for, for hours and hours and hours. And, and from that mo you know, from that time on, there were then two of them. And so Do Bill Wilson was a spiritual seeker and, and an experimenter. He did seances and then, but Dr. Bob found his, I think he found his Christian faith, you know, through his sobriety. Anyway, the point being that this pamphlet said we have looked at all the spiritual traditions of the many millennia, and we have found that the eight-part program of the Buddha most resembles our 12 steps. So that is something, you know, and, and again, this, this heartbeat of today, uh, our talk today of compassion, being at the heart of this. How can I compassionately help a person go through the 12 steps? Like that was the 
you know, if it wasn't the words that Jamie and I were driving with, those are the driving words. How can I compassionately offer this path that ha- is filled with compassion? How can I eliminate some of these, you know, roadblocks that weren't intended to be there? They're just sort of, they're there because 1930s. So I want to add to this or, or, or jump off of this, which is, you know, you talk about the eight and I'm gonna, the eight paths of the Buddha. Was that what you said? Well, Dr. Bob called it the eight part program of the Buddha. The, in Buddhist circles, they call it the eightfold path. Yeah. So we're talking about eight. And in the other work with recovery, we're talking about 12. And the number doesn't matter to me. But what matters to me is how I've always thought of this. And this is my next question for both of you. I've thought of the steps as a guide for life, a guide for living, and a guide that I never got growing up. And that's part of the trauma. Nobody taught me how to have self-compassion. Nobody taught me how to have fun. You know, there are so many pieces, big and small, that I just simply didn't learn. And I learned manipulation and I learned control. And, you know, these are ways that I survived. And I think what you're saying that, that the great wisdom of many paths is simply saying, here's how you do it right. Here's how you do it with compassion and kindness. And, um, and you're smiling and nodding your head. So I want to say, say, ask you to say more about that, Dr. Steve. And then I have a question for both of you. Uh, I'll just sort of add that, you know, what, a lot, another nickname I had for the steps when I was early in recovery was spirituality's greatest hits. And, you know, it, all, you know, that idea of all paths leading to one, one of the, one of the um, hallmarks of the work that Jamie and I do together is this idea of both and when we, for instance, we've written a book, EMDR therapy and mindfulness for trauma focused care. So it's not EMDR therapy or mindfulness. It's not the 12 steps or therapy. It's not, it's not the 12 steps or, you know, cognitive behavioral interventions. It's that we integrate, that we collect and integrate all the best practices and we put them into action. And I have this feeling that Dr. Marich wants to say something about that. Well, speaking a concrete example of both and agree with everything Steve said and bringing it to a more relational level, to me, both and means you can deeply love the alcoholic. If you're that wife, if you're that spouse that you talked about earlier, you can still appreciate what is good about them. You can show compassion and you can also say, I have to take care of myself and recognize where I've been hurt, where I've been wounded. It doesn't, because I know this is a lot of your work, it doesn't have to be that old codependency model of, okay, I got to cut them all off. And everybody's an individual case with this. And that's part of how, you know, compassion plays out. But for me, relationally, both and means I can love the person. I can love even the people who harmed me and I can recognize where I have to hold my boundaries and take care of myself and appreciate where I've been harmed. You know, it's interesting because the concept of how we look at it with betrayed spouses, for example, Mm -hmm. is this both an end, uh, but this makes them crazy, by the way, Mm -hmm. because we use the term ambivalent love, which is I look at you a little bit and I think, oh, you're, you, you know, I love you, you're with my family, with my kids, you're, you know, you're mowing the lawn, whatever it is. And I, you know, there you're making dinner and this is so great. And then you look at them and say, but you're the person who completely screwed up my life and I can't stand you. And how could you do this to me? And they go back and forth, which by the way, makes them feel crazy. So does that ring any bell related to what we're talking about here? Because I know a lot of the spouses that we talk to are just, mm-hmm. they feel insane. By one in the morning, I think he's great. In the afternoon, I want to kill him. You know, like that 
and both and both are true. Yes. I think that's the hallmark here of dialectics, that two things can be true at the same time. As Steve and I often talk about, that can drive people who are more scientifically minded crazy, people right, who right. find safety in black and white. It can make right. you feel like, like you're losing your balance, but can you learn to embrace that many things can be true at the same time? And that's where the mindfulness comes in as well, because mindfulness is not about clearing the mind. That's one of the you know, ways that people think, oh, I can't clear my mind. I can't do mindfulness. Mindfulness is learning how to be able to hold all of it, you know, and hold all of it with, you know, best case scenario at the end is equanimity with, you know, calm and balance. That's a big word with grace is what I'm thinking. But, but can you use a different term? Sure. That you, they can carry it all these, in, these, this ambivalence, these different ways of looking. For example, I was traumatized and I deserve a lot. Of, and I, I owe myself and, and perhaps I can get some empathy. And I did all of these horrible things that hurt people and, and not being one or the other. I think is part kind of what you're saying, but I, I don't know. You're, you're saying it. And also that word, you know, the word equanimity simply refers to how can I maintain just a, a, a sense of just being okay, even as I hold this, what I consider to be this horrible thought about my spouse, how can I also maintain that same equanimity when I'm loving them? Right. And that, it doesn't have to be drama anymore. Right. Mindfulness allows me to just hold and notice. Also, the most important thing is this notion of impermanence, that it's there and then it's not. It moves on. And I don't have to go chasing it and bring it back and go, oh, I'm going to hate them some more for now. It's more like, oh, notice that. That's gone. Now I'm feeling, I'm wondering what's for dinner. Oh, now I'm thinking, that's kind of awesome. Now I'm thinking, and I can just sort of move through life with a, a little more peace and ease. This brings up for me, and thank you for that, because I think we do get, addicts get stuck, by the way, in what, as partners do, you know, I'm going to hate you forever. I'm going to use forever, all of that. But I, 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 so I hear you and I have the most basic question and I'm going to start with you, Dr. Marriage. What does the 12 steps mean to you? Like, what is that? Like, what is it when I think, like I said, I, I think it's a guide for living. Like, what's the big deal? What does it even mean? I'll keep it personal for me. I mean, what they, I, I love Steve's commentary on the 12 steps or spirituality's greatest hits, because <laughs> as somebody who has a very ecumenical worldview, having grown up in two branches of pretty conservative Christianity, having loved a lot of Jewish people, being exposed to a lot of Buddhism, a lot of yoga and Hindu thinking, I, I do think it's all represented in some way in the 12 steps in a way that is more accessible. And personally, and I think a lot of it was because of the sponsor I had, but in that 12 step context, I found a God who loved me. And that was so very important coming from this very shame filled religious background where God was all hellfire, brimstone punishment and whatnot. So I, I just think they were able to make spirituality that I really so longed for and have always longed for in my soul more accessible. So I have to comment on that and ask you a question about that, which is we have this gentleman named uh, Jason Swilling, who uh, is an MDiv, and we have a spiritual counselor at Seeking Integrity. And one of the things that often comes up is spiritual abuse. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that people were beaten up by their religion or they were told who they should or shouldn't be. And, you know, you've both mentioned spirituality so many times. And I understand it means different things to different people and you can interpret it. But nonetheless, you keep referencing that word. And for yeah. some people, that's that's the trauma. So how how Dr. Marich and you're writing, you're going to write a book about this, book number 13 or 14, whatever it is. 14. It's my next book. I'm actually working on the edits right now. And it's my personal memoir of what it was like growing up into high demand Christian religions as someone who's queer. And yeah, it's, it's been a thread of all my teaching and the main trauma in the 12 steps. We do have a pretty hefty component in there about spiritual abuse and recognizing that, Hey, if you're a 12 step sponsor or therapist, we have to recognize that many people coming into a 12-step program have been wounded by God or spirituality or religion. Yes. And there are people who walk away from this. Mm -hmm. I can't be here because of that. So how do you, maybe this is another one of those and but questions, but how do you get away from those preconceptions or deep trauma experiences when you're asking someone to examine or have faith, I guess, faith? And, and, and I guess I don't want to add something like that. I never thought, and this is true for me in my story, I've struggled with God because I didn't grow up being able to rely on anyone. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that I'm not going to turn over my life to someone, I've, someone, something I've never met, never faith in what I turned to for support and direction never came. And so, again, that itself is spiritual damage. Mm-hmm. How do you do the and and but for you around this? Well, in summary, because this might be an episode or a question for another episode. No, we're doing great. Spiritual abuse. But I will say that part of it is whoever is guiding the person through the 12 steps, which is why a lot of the original trauma in the 12 steps, I did feel the biggest audience was therapists or sponsors or people who are taking through is to hold space for that person to be honest about their feelings about God or the divine. And recognizing, even though it can be hard for them because people can be horrible in certain 12-step circles, people who are atheists, people who are agnostic, people who don't have any deistic connection Mm -hmm. to God have still found something in the 12 steps. My current sponsor's husband is a card-carrying atheist. And I asked him and I interviewed him for Trauma in the 12 Steps, the original, and I said, how'd you do it, Mike? And he goes, because I had a sponsor who didn't care less, who wasn't trying to put his conceptualization of God on me. So, yeah, I think there's, Mm -hmm. there's, there's ways, but part of when I say there's ways is going back to the theme of this interview, compassion and adaptability is the person doing the guiding through the 12 steps, willing to embrace that compassion, modification, adaptability. I know we say this almost to the point of triteness, meeting people where they are instead of trying to get people to buy, you know, the agenda we're selling. Dr. Marich, I want to follow up with Dr. Danzinger before we end, but I do have, I I want to know what the first book was, what is the workbook that follows up, how can people get this, um, Mm -hmm. and a little more about how to reach you. I remember you had a website about trauma, and so, you know, Mm -hmm. which taught a lot of people a lot of things. So how can, what resources do you have in the world? Sure. Well, in the trauma and the 12 steps realm, we have the original trauma and the 12 steps. There's the new edition of the workbook that we've been talking about today. There's the trauma and the 12 steps meditation reader. You can find them Uh, all. Why didn't you mention that, that there's a meditation reader at the beginning? 
Yeah, that that came okay. out in the in the in twenty twenty. But that's more guideline. But anyway, yes, you can you can get the the work wherever books are sold. Uh, I will give people my website, which is jamiemarriage.com. On there, I have a tab where all of my books are linked and the best places to get them online. All thirteen plus and growing. Can you spell marriage? J a m i e m a r i c h dot com. So that's my primary website. I also have several offshoot websites like traumamadesimple.com, redefinetherapy.com. And you can always just search my name on social media or the interwebs and it'll, it'll take you to what I have to offer. And I do want to really recommend everyone to the trauma website because, and I'm going to ask you to mention it again, because so many people say, what is trauma? Uh, what is that? What is EMD? What are all these things? And I think you do such a great job of explaining it and, and where you do that. And I just want to repeat it is traumamadesimple.com. Um, yep. And you are one of the few people I know who've actually just said, Hey, here's what it is. And this is how it works. And, you know, in, in a reasonable short, cause I hear all the time, well, what is trauma? What are you talking about? I don't have trauma, you know? And, and I think you've done a great job of articulating that in a very simple way that costs again, nothing for people to find. So I'm going to go you. back to you, Dr. You're welcome. Well, we refer there a lot. Are there some final words from you, Dr. Denziger, about this amazing conversation and the beautiful relationship that you two have? Because I can see it from here. Yeah, just that I feel like the more that we spend this kind of time talking about these things this way for folks to be able to get access to the simplicity that is available in the 12 Steps if it's done in a trauma-sensitive way, can it's, it, it increases that web of healing that's been happening for, for all these decades um, exponentially. So I'm, I'm grateful to have had this conversation. Of course, I'm grateful to uh, be working with Jamie and watching what she does on her own and doing my own thing. And yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy about this workbook. I'm so glad that this workbook saw this particular type of light of day. I can already feel folks getting some, you know, progress in their program through it. So, And I want to add to all of you who think we're so wise and we know so much and we, we too are screwed up. And what brought us to this knowledge and this experience is our own challenges. You know, we didn't look at them as being defects. We looked at them as being a way to grow. And I'll say that for both of you. So thank you so much for being here. Steve, you didn't tell us how we can reach you. So the easiest, fastest way is drdanziger.com. So that's D-R-D-A-N-S-I-G-E-R.com. And that can lead you down any, any rabbit hole I might have available in addition to that. And your books also are Amazon. And I loved, I love Jamie that you said, and wherever books are sold. <laughs> I just love that. Wherever books are sold. Yeah. <laughs> right. So thank you both. And I will have you back more. And Dr. Danziger, we need to talk about doing this separately and talk about some of the work that you do. So thank you guys. Thanks for joining us on Sex, Love, and Addiction. And I hope as always that this can be a guiding light and a gift to you all. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate you. Thanks, Rob. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best 
most useful short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.